it's interesting uh, how God works because uh, I had uh, thought about uh, preaching uh, this sermon a while ago and then uh, got in touch with uh, Brad to see what he was preaching on. I knew he was in uh, Exodus uh, for a while and to my surprise he said, well, he was preaching in Hebrews and I thought, oh no. So I texted him back and said, where? <laughs> and he said, well, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. I said, perfect. <laughs> that leads right in uh, to uh, 4 uh, through 11, right after talking about this race of faith that we are all called to run with perseverance and with endurance. Beginning in verse 4 then, this is what God says. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all of us have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. You may be seated. Not all remembering is helpful. Sometimes remembering causes us to live in the past and to resent the present. This happened to Old Testament Israel a lot, especially after God delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. Not even two months after they had been delivered from their Egyptian taskmasters who were incredibly hard on them and even had uh, called for the slaughter of their male children, the Israelites grumbled against God. They complained uh, to Moses and to Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Ah, for the good old days when they were slaves. Remembering that causes us to live in the past and resent the present is not helpful. In Ecclesiastes 7.10, it says, Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask questions such as these. 
This apparently was the same conclusion that a sidewalk philosopher came to when he scribbled on a downtown city wall, nostalgia just ain't what it used to be. Remembering that causes us to live in the past and to resent the present is not helpful. But there is a kind of remembering that is helpful. It's helpful when it brings us encouragement, assurance, and direction. Back in the 1970s, over 130 million Americans watched at least a part of the miniseries Roots. For whites, it was fascinating to see a time in history that is kind of a dark stain on our history. It is a time that we would just as soon forget. But for blacks, for many blacks, it was also showing them that they had a traceable past that gave them a new meaning and a new direction for the future. In one of the episodes, the slave woman, Kizzy, says to her son, Chicken Sam, or Chicken George, um, I never married Sam, who was her lover. I never married Sam because Sam wasn't like the rest of us. Nobody ever told Sam where he came from and Sam didn't have a dream of where he ought to be going. Remembering that gives us encouragement, assurance, and direction is helpful. In Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, the prophet says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. In other words, you who are running this race of faith that the author of Hebrews has referred to earlier in this chapter. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. Remember your roots, cried the prophet, not because the past was better than the present, but for the purpose of encouragement, assurance, and direction. This is the kind of remembering that we need to do. And all of our roots, just as Abraham and Sarah's roots, go back to God. There are things that we have to constantly be remembering about God, or we are likely to fall to the temptation of dropping out of the race of faith, as many of these early Hebrew Christians were. What are some of these things, then, that we need to remember about God that will encourage us, assure us, and give us direction. Our text 
mentions three things that we need to remember about God. First of all, we need to remember God's word as we run the race of faith. Specifically, we need to remember the word from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, that refers to us as sons, as sons of God, as the children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said to a group of people who were opposed to him, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do your father's desire. There are two families on earth today. There's the family of the devil, and there's the family of God. If you have admitted that you are a sinner, justly under condemnation by a just and holy God, but you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and acceptance with God, then you are a child of God. You belong to the family of God. You're not just a saved person. You're a child of the king of kings. That's pretty impressive stuff, isn't it? Yes, but we also need to remember that the king of kings has high expectations of his children. With privilege comes responsibility. In Mark Twain's story, The Prince and the Pauper, Prince Edward, uh, the Prince of Wales, is envious of the lifestyle that is lived by Tom Canty, the pauper. As the prince... Edward finds that his life is full of all kinds of restrictions, that he has a number of responsibilities that other children don't have. He has to spend his days studying Greek and Latin. He is constantly being trained to follow in his father's footsteps. On the other hand, Tom Canty uh, lives a life of carefree ease. He spends his days playing with other boys in the streets, uh, swimming in the canals, and best of all, playing in the mud. This is what uh, one section of the story goes like. This is Tom Canty, the pauper, uh, explaining his life to Prince Edward, he says, We dance and sing about the maypole, the pauper tells the prince. We play in the, in the sand, each covering his neighbor up. And at times we make mud pies. Oh, the lovely mud! It hath not its like for delightfulness in all the world. We do fairly wallow in the mud, sir. 
Oh, please, replies the prince, say no more, it's glorious. If that I could clothe me in raiment like to thine, remember the pauper is wearing rags, if I could clothe me in raiment like to thine and go barefoot and revel in the mud once, just once with none to rebuke me or forbid, I believe I could forego the crown. Really? Playing in the mud is more valuable than the crown? Like Tom Canty, we who are the children of the King of Kings might often wish we could have a carefree lifestyle, like the pauper, that we might have no one to restrict our activities in any way, that we may be allowed to do anything that gave us pleasure. But we mustn't believe that the king of kings is going to allow his children to behave like the children from that other family. It is a great thing to be a child of the king of kings. But along with privilege comes responsibility. We need to remember these things. We need to remember that we are children of the king of kings and we need to remember that the king of kings has high expectations of his children, and therefore he disciplines them. And if we don't remember that, then we are likely to make two big mistakes. First of all, we are likely to make light of the discipline of the Lord. Or in other words, to think it unnecessary. Very often, I think, as Christians, we are kind of like soldiers in peacetime who resent the fact that they have to be constantly training when there is really no war to be fought. But the truth of the matter is that unless we are trained by the Lord's discipline, then we are not going to be ready for the real tough times that come when we will need to be ready to face opposition, persecution, or other kinds of suffering. In verse 4 of our text, it says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. They haven't gotten to that point yet, but the clear implication is that that time may come and they need to be ready for it. And in the meantime, the Lord disciplines them through various difficulties in their life so that they will be ready for that time. A little girl once complained to her teacher that her mother didn't know much about mothering. And the teacher said, why do you say that? And she said, because she makes me go to bed when I'm not sleepy and makes me get up when I am sleepy. 
Well, just like that little child, we may not fully understand what it takes to be a father who really cares and loves for his children. We don't need to doubt that God, our Heavenly Father, knows good and well what is necessary for us in order for us to become the children of the King that he desires us uh, to be. The second mistake we could make is to be overwhelmed by this discipline. Very often when we go through difficult times, when we face persecution, when we have to deal with other forms of suffering in our lives, we often feel that God has abandoned us. Like David in one of the Psalms, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, God never forsook David. There is only one child of God that has ever been forsaken by God, and that was Jesus Christ himself. And God did that because he loved us so much. Just because we're going through difficult times or we're being persecuted or we're suffering in some other way that we don't understand doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. He cares for us. He loves us. And even though we have to go through serious discipline at times, the truth of the matter is that our God also helps us through these times of discipline. To the Apostle Paul, who was going through a difficult time, God did not promise him that he was going to take that difficulty away from him. He just promised him that his grace would be sufficient for him. God not only knows how to bring us up, what discipline we need, but he is always there with us to help us through those difficult times and to give us the grace and the strength, the help that we need to continue to endure and to run the race of faith that has been set before us. Is the mud really worth the crown? We may wish that God would allow us to live a carefree life. We may wish that we could do anything we wanted to do, that we may do anything that would give us pleasure, but being a child of the King of Kings means that we have a responsibility to become the kind of children he wants us to be. We belong to his family, not the other family. So first of all, we need to remember the word of God as we run the race of faith. Specifically, the word that addresses us as the sons, as the children of God, as the children of the King of Kings. And secondly, we need to remember God's care for us as we run the race of faith. God 
loves us. He cares for us. But that doesn't mean that he has ever promised us that life was going to be easy. In fact, quite the opposite. I know people like to claim God's promises. Uh, we, uh, when I was growing up, uh, had what we called a promise box. I don't know if uh, uh, the rest of you have uh, experienced this or not, but every morning at breakfast, we would pick out one of the promises from the promise box, and we would read that. And as I reflected back on that, I remembered that all of the promises were good things. But do you know that the Bible also promises bad things as well? Jesus told his disciples, in the world you will have trouble. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, suffered in this world. And he did that, Peter tells us, as an example for us to follow. There are all kinds of places in the scripture that tell us that we need to be prepared for those hard times, for persecution, for all forms of suffering. We are not, as the children of the king, promised that we will be spared those things. But God is using those things in our lives because he loves us and cares for us. I think uh, one of the most helpful books that I've ever read with regard to why Christians suffer along with everybody else in the world is found in C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. Let me just read a short section here from it because this is, is very, very good. Listen carefully. C.S. Lewis says, We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology in precisely those terms, but a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds. I do not claim to be an exception. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines, but since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have a reason to believe nonetheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. As scripture points out, it is bastards who are spoiled, the legitimate sons who are to carry on the family tradition are disciplined. It is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms. With our friends, our lovers, our children, we are exacting and would rather see them suffer much than be happy in contemptible and in estranging modes. 
If God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though he has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. I remember when our kids were growing up having this experience a number of times, and I'm sure you've had it with uh, your children if you have children, but they would come and ask for permission to do something. I remember in one case it was to go see a movie that we did not think was appropriate for children of their age. And the response from the kids was, well, but so-and-so's parents are letting them go. And our middle daughter, Emily, saying with regard to a friend of hers, her mother lets her see anything she wants to see. She doesn't care. And that was the point. She didn't care. God our Heavenly Father does care about us. And while it's hard for us to accept, hardship and difficulties, persecution and suffering are not evidences of the fact that God loves us less. They are evidences of the fact that God loves us more. Again, listen to what C.S. Lewis says on this. He says, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become the objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. So we need to remember. We need to remember God's care for us as we run the race of faith. Difficulties, hardships, persecution, and suffering aren't indications that God doesn't care about us. They are actually indications that he cares more. And then finally, we need to remember God's purpose as we run the race of faith. You know, as earthly parents, we do the best that we can to discipline our kids. And we do this for their good, at least most of the times. Now, again, we know that that's not always true. Our motives are uh, sometimes questionable. Uh, for instance, uh, I would tell my girls, okay, girls, it's time to go to bed. And they'd say, oh, it's only 6 o'clock. And I'd say, yeah, but you know how much you need your rest. And, of course, the translation to that is, I'd like a quiet 
evening at home to myself. Go to bed. Or you say to your kids, all right, that's enough television. Go outside and get some exercise. It'll be good for you. The translation, of course, is there's something on television that I want to watch. Now get out of here. Our motives may be questionable, but God's motives never are. God always disciplines us for our good. In some of your translations, the word for discipline or chastening, uh, for chastising, may actually be translated as punishment. But I want you to understand that when God disciplines, it's always for our good. It's always for the purpose of perfection. It's not punitive in nature. The word that is used here in the book of Hebrews isn't the normal word that is used for punishment when punishment is thought of as punitive, as retribution for something. God always disciplines his children for their good. It's for a good purpose. It's for the purpose of making us to actually be the children of the king that he wants us to be. This discipline, again, can be very severe. I'm sure that there were times that Job wished perhaps that he was not a child of God if it involved suffering what he had to suffer. Johnny Erickson Tata, who as a teenager in a diving accident became a quadriplegic for life, struggled with that. And yet, at the end, she was able to come to the conclusion that God had a special care and a love for her, that he had a special purpose for her. And she thanks God today for the fact that she was allowed to become a quadriplegic because she said otherwise she never would have come to have the relationship with God that she has today. In other words, she realized that Playing in the mud doesn't come close to being as important as the crown. For her, she understood that God's purpose in perfecting her, in bringing her to a state of holiness that she wouldn't have experienced apart from that tragic accident was a blessing because God's purpose in disciplining us is always for our good. Not all remembering is helpful. Sometimes remembering causes us to live in the past and to resent the present. But there is a kind of remembering that is good for us. It is helpful when it gives us encouragement, assurance, and direction. We need to remember these things about God before we actually have to go through these difficulties, these hardships, these persecutions, this suffering. Remember 
the word of God as you run the race of faith. Specifically, the word that addresses you as a child of God. Remember God's care for you. He loves you, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And remember God's purpose. His purpose is not to punish you. His purpose is to perfect you, to make you fit for heaven, to make you fit for the crown that each of us as the children of the king of kings are going to wear someday. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, encouraging word. Father, I thank you for how realistic your word is, how it helps us uh, to see your goodness in life even when times are hard. Thank you for what your word tells us about your love and your care for us. Thank you that you love and care for us enough to discipline us and to perfect us and to make us fit for heaven and to make us worthy of wearing the crown that belongs to the children of the King of Kings. Father, we pray that we might strive to live these lives to your glory, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.